Um, we kicked off the stewardship campaign last week, and I was talking about our stewardship campaign to a few people last week. One person asked me a number of questions. Uh, not from our church, but from another church. He was actually a pastor. And he asked me how I was going to discuss the issue of tithing. Are you going, here's some of the questions he asked me directly. Are you going to explain the differences between a tithe, a gift, and an offering that is over and above reg regular giving? And then, are you going to explain what the expected percentage of your income is in order to be considered a full tithe? Is it 10% on your gross, or is it 10% on your after-tax? Or will you raise the bar based on what some of the more popular Jewish rabbis taught during Jesus' time? That truly righteous giving was around 20%. And then the widow's mite, what percentage of her income was that? Some think it may have been about 50% of what she was able to give. And behind those questions, as I was listening, I could feel some more questions, more unspoken questions. Don't you think it's the pastor's job to figure out the proper amounts for each and every financial situation a person may be in at the church? Shouldn't the pastor be able to accurately calculate what each person should give? And isn't that why we pay the pastor the big bucks to figure all this out? So Chris, have you thought any of that through? Don't you, as the pastor, need to tell us what God's will is for us when it comes to giving? Isn't that what a stewardship campaign is all about? I tell you what to give because that's my job. Well, first of all, I'm a nice pastor. I'm a nice guy. So I smiled and I nodded. But in my heart, I wanted to say that just won't work. It will push people away. Not only does the discussion concerning the specifics of tithing make for an incredibly boring, boring tedious Sunday morning sermon, but that's putting the cart before the horse. Especially in our current culture that is full of what I call recovering fundamentalists. It's full of in this church, who are very hesitant to fall for some manipulative, angry, guilt-ridden giving campaign. So I've decided to approach this campaign from a different angle. And so there is a method to my madness. I'll explain this to you. I believe that before a pastor can talk about precise amounts of how much to give, he must first unlock the unwilling heart. If a person sees no real compelling reason on why to give, you can talk to them till you're blue in the face about tithing and amounts and biblical examples and models, but nothing will ever be accomplished. It, it won't matter. Arms will remain crossed. Skepticism will be high. Hmm. And um, honestly, participation will be almost zero. 2%, 3%. So I'm going to use four very simple questions to pick the lock on the stubborn heart. That's what I'm going to try to do. My job is to try to compel you to just let go of holding so tight to things and the money to buy those things. Last week, the first question of our campaign was about what makes God mad. I said what riles God up. 
The idea is what makes God mad? And the answer was when we don't trust Him. When we don't trust His promises. When we don't believe He can do what He said He's going to do. And so my case last week was trying to get us to believe if, if we're going to do it, it's going to be God who's going to do it. And more importantly, He wants you to believe that He can do it. That's really what He wants you to believe. That He can accomplish what He asks you to do. If we believe this, believe it or not, the pressure's off. The pressure's off us. I can give myself to a project when God is running it instead of a bunch of angry leaders, worried members, and your ever-present smug critics that like to resist. You'll always find smug critics. They're everywhere. And so that was last week. Question two is going to be the difficult question. I call it the spiritual x-ray. My intent is to expose motives. Why do we do what we do? We're going to expose even to ourselves what our motives are. Because I'm not sure we know why we do what we do. Because let us be honest, this is a hard one to pick, because truly at at the core of each person lives a greedy old miser sitting in the corner of his cave, shining his coins. He's in, all, he's in all of us. And so, here's the question for this week. It's a strange question. And the question is simple. Is Jesus serious? Is he serious? So turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 35, and you will understand what this question is referring to. The question is, is Jesus serious? You can say it like that. Is he really serious? Is he just pulling my leg? And it's based on what's written in Acts 20.35. The context of this verse in Acts is very, very plain. Paul is nearing his ministry, specifically with the church in Asia, the church of Ephesus. So he gathers the elders. They're on a beach. And he wants to give them a final charge before he leaves. It's his last in a sense, to the church, will and testament. And what we're going to read is the very last thing he gives them, he says to them, very last principles on what guides his life. And listen to what it says. Start in verse 33. He's talking to his church leaders. And this is a very heavy emotional time. Right after he says this, he hugs them on the beach and leaves them. He'll never see them again. Verse 33, he says, I, he's talking about being a missionary and pastor, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And then here's the verse. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And that's the question. Is Jesus serious about that? It's more blessed to give than receive? And Paul's talking not just about money, but all of your life. Because if I would be honest, if you would be honest, In real life, the world does not work like this. This is not the way the world works at all. We all live and act as if it is more blessed to receive than give. 
You do. I do. We all do. We all act this way. Isn't that what Christmas was all about? I go to the tree to look if there's any presents for me. Me. My presents. Isn't that what every commercial is about? I was in advertising when I was in business school and I learned that your job as an advertiser is to appeal to the base instinct of the person to get them to buy your product. McDonald's says, I'm loving it. When I ate those fries, I'm loving it. That's their campaign. L'Oreal says this, because you're worth it. And then you have this, of course. There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Buy, consume, get, grab, hide it, keep it. It's yours. The world's your oyster. My precious. Mine. Jesus says give. Jesus says give. How can he really mean this? Because he knows who we are. How can he really mean this? That's actually why he's saying it, because he knows who we are. How can he mean it's more blessed to give than receive? What does more blessed mean? That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how giving blesses you and others and God. What it means to be more blessed. So let's begin. The first way we need to begin, though, is to discuss what Jesus is not saying. What he is not saying. Because I'm afraid the Christian church is stuck on a terrible misunderstanding. It's a terrible misunderstanding. Jesus is not saying, and I want you to hear me very clearly, he is not saying give in order to get rich. He is not saying it's more blessed to give than receive because if you give, you'll receive. It's not what he's saying. But somewhere along the line, the church really buys into that. Look at this book. This is a great book. I recommend nobody buying this book. Supernatural Success. I can, I can hear it like that. Supernatural Success. And the underlying says, Spiritual laws used to generate over a million dollars and beat Oprah in website traffic. He beat Oprah. <laughs> he it has to be from God if he beat Oprah. So you learn these principles so you can receive. This is not what Jesus means. By blessed are those who give. You cannot manipulate God. He reads motives. He reads hearts. He reads minds. And so the idea of getting by giving is often how we interpret a lot of other verses. Like here's another verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. And I've heard it taught. So what is the desire of your heart? Money? Fame? Happiness? If you want to get any of those things, you better first delight yourself in the Lord, and then you'll get them. Huh. So then, am I really wanting God, or what God can give me? Sometimes I think that's the whole problem with the way we preach the gospel. Many people think God and his son are nothing more than a means to an end. Heaven. God is our heaven. God is our portion. God is, God is our cup. It's about God. He's the most important thing. And so when it comes to stewardship campaign, we often use another verse. Go to Malachi 3.10. 
This is probably the favorite verse used during stewardship campaigns, Malachi 3.10. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 3 comes after chapter 2. And in verse 10. Malachi 3.10. And so the message of the Lord is coming to the people of God. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test. The NIV says, test me. Test me on this. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. Just give and I'll open the floodgates of heaven. And so you could say, see, he is saying give and you'll get blessed. Isn't that not true? The statement Malachi is more about banking on the trustworthiness of God than trusting in your bank account. It's about banking on God's word and his heart. He'll take care of you. So the idea is if you give to him, he'll take care of you. That's what it's about. Not about if you give a seed of $100, he'll give you back 1000 Yes, sir, I guarantee you. Well, that's a joke. Stop that stuff. We're here to worship a living God who's our dad. This is not what Jesus meant by blessed are those who give. His word's not a rich, get-rich-quick scheme, nor should we try to compel giving by promising material blessing. That's not what we're doing. So then, what does it mean? I'm just going to give three ideas, what it means that you'll be blessed by giving. First of all, I think what Jesus means when he talks about giving and blessing is that giving is a primary means to worshiping God. More than anything, more than anything, giving is the clearest way to show that I love him. Jesus gave his life because he loved the Father. He gave of himself, of what was truly important. So you could say it like this. What you do with your money reveals who you worship. Here's how Matthew 6, 24 describes our worship. Matthew 6, 24 says, there's two masters that you can serve. Jesus says either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he's saying, some verses say mammon, but mammon is the God of wealth. So when you freely give your money, it's the clearest indication you've chosen God. When money is your God, you will hold tight to it and won't let it go. Giving is a blessing because not only does it worship God, it gives him, blesses his name, but it will confirm in your own heart that you love your Lord, really. There's a specific case in point, Matthew. Go to Matthew 19. Matthew's one book to the right of Malachi. Matthew 19. 21 and 22. Here's a man that worshipped money. Jesus knew it. 
He knew his heart and he challenged him on it. We know this story as the rich young ruler. I want to start in verse 21. Or you can start in 16. Here's the story of the rich young ruler. I have, I think, what he'd probably look like today. Probably look like that. Verse 16 of Matthew 19. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. So he's naming the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, All these I've kept, what do I still lack? That's a pretty amazing statement. Jesus says in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go... Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus says to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty where a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knew what ruled this man's heart. And he asked him to let go of it and worship God instead. The man could not let go of the God of money. He just couldn't. I like what one writer says about this story. This is a great statement. The young man did not go away because he found no attraction what Jesus offered. He was attracted by Jesus. Most of us are. But he went away because the cost of following seemed too great. And then he writes, because greed is idolatry says that actually in Colossians. Why is greed idolatry? Because greed shows that mammon's my God. And it's idolatry of the worst kind because behind mammon is self. It's really worship of myself. Giving cuts ties from being dependent on yourself and what money can do for me. Giving causes me to fall at the feet of Christ, to trust in Him, to supply my need. Jesus can do more than we can do for ourselves with a full wallet. I don't think we believe that. Say that again. Jesus can do more for us than we can do for ourselves with a full wallet. Unbelieving that is where blessing starts. Second thing about blessing is when you give, giving, I believe throughout Scripture, is what really satisfies you. I think to a degree we are on this earth to be satisfied. It is through the means of giving that satisfaction is achieved. We've been designed to God to have both inputs and outputs. Everything alive must output to stay healthy. And when we give out, we feel satisfied. When we only input, we get fat. Not just physically, but spiritually fat. That's why if you want to read an interesting verse in the book of Deuteronomy... The King James, it says it like this. Israel waxed fat and kicked because they got and didn't give. They just were fat. Jesus is telling you how you are made to live and to work. I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I follow, when I'm in a car, I like to listen to different speakers. I like listening to Ravi Zacharias and R.C. Sproul and Alistair Begg. 
these men are Christian preachers. They're really good. I mean, they're really good. But there's a guy I've been listening to a lot. Actually, he's one of my favorite speakers. But he's not an evangelical. But I shouldn't tell you this, but I listen to him often. His name is Jordan Peterson. He has a massive following online. His videos have been viewed well over 200 million times, specifically by young men ages 18 to 30. It's a strange phenomenon because men 18 to 30 check out, except when this guy talks. They listen. He's very honest. He's very sincere. Someone asked him why he has such a large following of young men. And here's what he said. Listen to what he said. While two-dimensional culture narratives, that means the way people look at young men, just from a two-dimensional means, they haven't really thought through this. Two-dimensional cultural narratives would say that young people are simply a bunch of video game playing, funny cat video watching, silly meme sharing entertainment addicts, which they partially are. I mean, all of you do that stuff. I know, Brad, you watch those cat videos. Don't deny it. Then he says, a look at the facts would differ. The young men I am attracting want to hear that life has purpose. And one of the best ways to determine it is by finding the largest burden that you can bear and bearing it. It sounds like nobody would like that, but they love it, he says. And he goes on to say, instead of teaching self-esteem, I teach responsibility. Because really, we only feel good and find purpose when we give. That's from a clinical psychologist. In other words, here's what I would say to, in a biblical language, it's more blessed to give because we've been designed to give by God than to receive, hoard, become a miserable slob sitting on your mom and dad's couch until you're 28 years old. It's miserable. When I was 23, I worked at a, as a landscaper and I lived in my parents' house. On Saturday, I'd usually sleep in. I'd wake up and then watch college football all day, like all day. And then at 7 o'clock, I would, my dad would make something to eat, and I'd just feel fat and lazy and tired. I'd go to bed early. But one Saturday, my dad decided to have all my brothers and sisters and myself help him fell four huge trees in his backyard. He called it, he said, hey, we're going to have a lumberjack day. We're all going to gather at my house at 6 in the morning, and then we're going to start cutting those trees down. My mom had a big breakfast at about 9 o'clock, 9.30. She had, it was great breakfast, I'll never forget it, bacon, waffles, pancakes, coffee, orange juice. Doesn't that sound good right about now, Kim? Sounds good. Waffles, blueberry. And then at, at 11 o'clock, we went back out and worked until 5.30, 6 o'clock. Not only did we fell all the trees, we stacked all the wood. He had wood till for all winter. I didn't watch one football game that day. We stacked enough wood, and the whole time, we, it was just fun. We laughed, we talked. And to this day, I'll never forget that day. But I have forgotten most of my other Saturdays. That morning, I landed in the land of satisfaction. Let me show you how to get there. I've got a little model of how to get to the land of satisfaction. It's two lands. Because of sin's hold on us, it wants to keep us, it's where we start, wants to keep us in the land of misery. The land of misery, I'm telling you, is a terrible place to live. It really will start affecting you. 
This is the place where the greedy old miser has us, and he thrives. You can tell the miser has you because all you think about is hoarding, clawing, keeping things, sitting, pouting, dreaming of more, wishing for more, whining for more, comparing with others, complaining, criticizing, and crying that you don't have more. It's a horrible place. It's the land of misery, the misery of self. Then you have the land of satisfaction. And I, I believe the land of satisfaction entails two words that sound horrible, but once you really know them, they're blessed words. And these two words are sweating and serving. These two words seem horrible when you look at them from the land of misery. The miserable person says to himself, why would anyone in their right mind want to work hard and sweat and sacrifice? And serve others. I believe that's where Satan has most of his claws in us in this land of misery. He wants to make us useless. The only way to see right is through the cross. The cross asks us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily. And then when you pick up your cross, you serve others, you'll start seeing the beauty of these two words. But in order to get to the land of satisfaction, the cross kills the self. It's death. It's called crucifixion. But only after crucifixion can you find satisfaction that you've been looking for. That is why it's more blessed to give than receive. And then the final one, and I think this may be the most important one of all, Giving shows who you belong to. I have the slide says it shows that you're a follower, but I was thinking more through it. I've, I've decided I didn't took to, I changed it my uh, my text here, and I didn't want to change my slides because I'm lazy. See, I didn't want to sweat, put out the effort. But I would put it like this now. My slide, I'd say, giving shows that I am His. I am His son. I am Jesus' brother. I'm his child. When I give, I'm acting like my dad. I once heard an illustration that really got me thinking. I'm going to try to do it. Hopefully it was really done well, so I, don't, I might butcher it, but I love this illustration. Imagine you're driving a car, and you're driving it to a museum. It's a gigantic museum. And inside that museum are pictures that are just beautiful and, and statues and antique furniture and vases are in there. It's huge. It's a vast museum. And there's one vase that you see that you look at and you, you study it. You realize that vase is worth millions of dollars. But it's a beautiful vase. But it's priceless. The curator's been watching you, and the curator has his hands in his pockets, and he sees that you're touching that vase. And he says, you want that vase? You can have it. And you look at him, and you say, what do you mean I can have it? That'd be stealing. He goes, don't worry about it. Take it. I don't trust you. I'll put the, I'll put the vase. No, seriously, you can have it. My dad owns a museum. It's all yours. Go ahead and take it. At that time, I can believe either two things. Number one, that guy's lying to me. He's a thief, and he's going to jump me after I leave it with that vase. 
or he's telling me the truth. His dad owns the place. So I ask him again, are you sure? He goes, I'm telling you. All of this is mine, and if you want that vase, and if it's going to make you happy, take it. My dad owns the place. Is God your dad? Because he's generous. Oh, is he generous? Do other people know that he's your dad? Because he's generous. It's what grace is all about. He's generous. How do I know he's generous? Usually we have a cross up there. He gave us his son. He gave us his son. Question is, are, are you a generous person? It is generous people that make up a generous church. And when people come to a generous church, I believe they'll start to see that God is a generous father. Sadly, most churches today are stingy. If you're stingy, not just with your money yourself, more than likely, so is your gospel. 